that should be us good to go. So, like I say, I'll just pause for a wee second. What, what I usually get to every day to do is, because obviously I don't, it's Rachel that does the editing, so I always get every day to say hello to Rachel, because she, I think she expects it now, but say hello to Rachel, everybody. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> um, and then we'll just pause and get going. Oh. You scared Gary off. I was going to say, I was scared Gary away. <laughs> There we go. So welcome back to Tough and Tarmac, the SACU podcast. Um, today, where I've got a bit of a special um, mental health podcast for Men's Mental Health um, Month. So we are joined by our learning, learning and development manager, Shabazz, our sports development intern, Arif, and Gary, who is the coordinator of the Edinburgh Monarchs Academy. And he's also a trained mental health first aider as well. Um, so we've got a, a variety of different people to, to speak about their experiences in mental health. Um, and what the, the sport does for it as well. So firstly, I think that we should pass on to the, the older people in the in the call to say what's the this this <laughs> what is the what's changed in the past five to ten years regarding men's mental health? Like is the stigma going away? Is it what's what's changed? Um I'll I'll, I'll take that one first. So yeah, uh from a kind of practical perspective, I think there's been um, probably over the last, I don't know, five, six years, there's been a greater um, emphasis on good mental health, bearing in mind, obviously, everybody has mental health. It's not a, uh, it's not an affliction. Uh, and I think when people get their head around the idea that everybody has mental health, whether it's good, bad, or a combination of that, um, you start to sort of move forward with some of this stuff. Um, I think in terms of stigma, yep. Uh, I mean, I think um, there's a lot of organisations, professional and, you know, uh, sports uh, who are taking um, it more seriously than they ever did. Um, I think there's still a long way to go. Um, I think some employers and some sports organisations are, are better than others. Um, and I think we're kind of seeing a situation where, interestingly, like, um, you know, different other uh, so we say socioeconomic groups, we're, we're probably seeing more people prepared to um, come forward and um, say that they have challenges in the mental health space than ever before. Um, we know that it's, it's not a new phenomenon. It's not suddenly three, four years ago, mental health started to be a thing or bad mental health started to be a thing. It's always been there. It's just people have been afraid to speak. And I think it's kind of good and refreshing. And I always encourage, you know, people to to chat through the kind of various avenues I have open to myself in terms of trying to promote um, that. Um, so, yeah, again, I think we're still a bit to go. Um, but I think certainly, you know, listening to people saying we've got challenges and reaching out for some assistance from the, either the peer groups or professionally um, can only be good for, for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I'd agree with that. I think, you know, someone is, is sort of talking in their mid-twenties, five, ten years ago, you know, I don't think it's probably something we spoke about very much, but I think having sort of young nieces and nephews, I think they speak about it a lot more than what we maybe did when we were at school, and they seem to be a lot more aware of it. And I also think with the, you know, advances in technology, everybody's on their phone, and I think it's a lot more getting shared on the likes of Facebook and Instagram and there's probably a lot more of an awareness than there probably was, as I say, five, ten years ago. And I definitely know now that there's, I feel that there's maybe less of a, 
a stigma attached to men speaking about their feelings. I think there's been a lot more campaigns, there's been a lot more awareness where I know that I'd be, you know, more than capable of phoning up my friend and telling him I love him, you know, but would that be, would that have been accepted, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago? I don't know. I think as well, I think some of the language around about mental health has dramatically changed. You know, you, you, you know, some of the tags that go, you know, um, I don't know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't think twice about calling somebody you're mad or you're a schizo or, um, you know, you, you know, just fairly terms of our everyday language. And I think actually even... now as derogatory and, 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 and you, you wouldn't use it because it would upset someone who genuinely is. And one of the challenges with, you know, speaking to people is, you know, unlike a broken leg, you know, physical health is very, very visible. You can see somebody with a broken leg. You can't see somebody that's got a, a challenge in the mental health space. And you've always got to be careful about who you speak to and, and how you speak to them. Um, it's important that you do speak to them, but it's the language that's kind of changed over the last, I would suggest, you know, the last two, three years, maybe even, um, particularly in the workplace, um, you know, casual you know, casual language that is um, perhaps was was used then is is not um, has not got a place now um, because there's yeah. a greater awareness. Definitely, and again, that kind of goes back to the point I was saying that you know when you were younger and you almost said something that was maybe considered a bit feminine, there was always those sort of bad remarks that went around. That, as you say, they're not socially acceptable anymore. I mean, they weren't acceptable back then, but um, you know, so I think that's definitely moved on, and and almost again pull down another barrier because men feel that they can speak a little bit more and they're not going to be necessarily judged, you know, because of that. Well, uh, I mean, if I could, talking with my personal experience, because I haven't been in this country and then I've mostly like spent my life in and then uh, the stigma, especially in India, like uh, five, 10 years ago or even five years ago was, I think the major problem was the lack of education about it. Because like I suffer, obviously everyone has their own mental issues and then I've had mine and then I couldn't, the thing is, even with me, I knew something was wrong with me, but then I did not know what it was. So even the word depression, like I learned it fairly, like what you can, it wasn't like that long ago, which I learned what depression is and I could define it and I could put a word to it. So we weren't taught what it was and there was no education about it. So I couldn't go to my mom like and say like how you're talking about or how Gary was talking about say a broken leg and then you can see it and then I can go show that this is where it pains, right? I couldn't go to my parents and then say what was wrong with me. So the education bit was lacking and the stigma was obviously there because uh, the whole masculinity bit, right? Even like as a child, I was told even if I was feeling with even by my parents that you have to just get on with it. And then because men, like men cannot be weak. That's what my father used to always say. Like men cannot cry. Men cannot be weak. You have to like motivate yourself and just get on with whatever you're feeling. So I think the sigma and the suppression was there back then. But then like even when I came into this country and then let's say when I've had trouble with my assignments and things, it was very shocking that they considered, uh, for me, to be honest, especially that they considered mental illness as an illness as well. And they had special 
contingencies in place to help students with that because i never saw that back in india that wasn't the thing like even in schools mental health was never spoken about so i suppose uh, it is get heading in the right direction but then it hasn't reached the levels it needs to especially like in the eastern countries but then the progress is there yeah i think as well that um, recently there's been a fair few high high level people and across sport um, who have openly spoke about their mental illness um, you know people like from the boxing world tyson fury has been very open about his struggles um, you know people like simone biles who obviously pulled out of the olympics i mean you you can't get more open than, than that. Um, and then in kind of an our world, Fabio Quattararo, who just became OGP world champion this year. Last year, he was leading the world championship with however many rounds to go and lost it because he's he, he suffered from anxiety and he ended up um, he ended up just um, like not being able to round the season out because he was worrying about this and worrying about that. And, um, and then... After after it all happened, openly admitted that that's what happened. Um, you know, he, he cracked under the pressure. You know, suffering from these these mental things that were boring, uh, boring him. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that people at a very high level are now showing that it happens it, in sport, that is, it, it's actually making more people come out and speak about it. And um, because you. You know, beforehand you would never have seen like anybody at a high level of sport admitting that they would, that that was that was what was wrong. It would, they would always put it down to something else. So I think that's a real positive. Going I forward. think definitely, like in the sporting world, these people coming out, you know, these athletes and these sort of superstars in sport coming out and talking about it is really really important because I think in years gone past, you know, we've always thought of, of these athletes have been like really mentally strong and being really mentally resilient. It's all a bit grit, and if you you know if you failed, it's because of you didn't perform well enough or you weren't mentally strong enough. But I think now the, these people coming out shows us that even the top level athletes, these people will be mentally strong. They'll have determination, they'll have grit, but they still need to talk about things. They still need to rely on other people. And I think if we can see that in our idols, as it were, then it almost makes you think, no, do you know what? I'm not feeling great today. I will tell my friend, you know, yeah, I'm having a bit of crap day. Can we go and grab a coffee or something? You know, I will talk to my missus you know, and say this is, you know, I'm having a bit of stress at work. And yeah, I think it's really important for people to, to come out and be that example. I, mean, I think that's I, a good, I mean, I think that's a really good point, actually. Um, the, this whole idea that, you know, a, a, a professional athlete at the top of their game or a professional sportsman at the top of their game is almost like a kind of infallible because they've kind of got this sort of, uh, you know, mental, Yeah, you, you, you believe they've got a kind of mental, um, uh, structure in there that kind of makes someone beatable but I think the reality of it is it's a wee bit like a race I, I kind of sort of make an analogy of kind of like a racehorse you know if, if you you know your, your average horse in the field you know is, is one thing a, 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 you know a thoroughbred racehorse is another thing they're quite highly strong that's why they wear blinkers um, they they don't they, they have to be they're trained to be in a certain environment to do a certain thing and anything that gets in the way of that, they can't handle. And and um, you know, I think um, you know, I always kind of find, and this is kind of quite why I quite like understanding the links between physical first aid and, and mental for health first aid or mental first aid, is that you know we see particularly young guys um, falling off motorbikes at seventy miles an hour or in, in similar disciplines a lot faster. 
and uh, they get up because they're just full of adrenaline and testosterone and they, they kind of just, you know, yeah, I'm getting back in my bike. But actually we, we disregard the, the fact that they, they could be physically, they can be off, they can have a physical injury, which they carry and they continue to carry because they think that they're going to keep going on and in the long term, it, it doesn't do them any good. I've known so many riders who, and this is, again, this is sort of coming out in terms of um, having sort of poor mental personality. We, we've had a couple of um, riders in Speedway this season who have taken time out of the sport at various points because they are, they publicly acknowledge that their mental health is not in a good space and they need to take the time away. Whereas maybe before it's just been a, a sort of situation where maybe a speed rider's had a few, a few bumps over the course of a very short period of time. And, it, you know, uh, as well as maybe knocking the stuffing out them physically a wee bit, there's this idea where their head's not in the right place. You know, the, 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 their heads away, you know, they, they, they can't ride because they, they can't hack it. Now we're kind of seeing that no, it's, it's not a case that they can't hack it. It's just the fact that they, they, they need to kind of take some time out. They kind of need to relax. They need to kind of reflect on their own well-being and, and you know, go back to a sport when they're ready. One of the other things about Speedway is the fact that these guys are professional. And um, if they don't ride, they don't get paid. They don't get paid. They don't feed the families and that kind of stuff. There's no. It's, it's not like football. You can spend months on a, uh, a treatment table and still get paid. You know. So these guys are looking for their next pay packet, and you know, having a physical injury, far less a mental, a, a mental issue, as a mental health issue, is 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 not good for them. So you get a lot of them. You know, I, I speak to them, and yeah, you, you just you just know that there's just something there that they just want to take a step back and think of their well-being before anything else. But yeah, sadly, the environment doesn't always let them do that. But, you know, it's a fair point made about, um, you know, uh, sportsmen and falling off and that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, adding to, say, Gary's point, right? I mean, I couldn't, like, say, give you the perspective of a rider, but then I follow football. The problem with football over the years has been we celebrate, like, people going through grit and injuries like I mean I can say remember the instances where Schweinsteiger in the World Cup 2014 World Cup he was bleeding and he was physically bleeding and he didn't want to get off and I understandable because he had the rush of adrenaline it was the World Cup final and then the crowd was cheering for him because uh, we are hardwired to let's say always celebrate that and then over the years then recently uh, like how Callum was talking about um, different Sports, let's say the elite sports members coming out. How Kristen Pulisic came out from football, Ben Stokes coming out in cricket, and then even Naomi Osaka, like taking out a French Open, I suppose, with the entire media present and in general, especially when these uh, elite sportsmen talk about the mental health in general, it kind of raises awareness in a good way because, like Shabazz said, we idealize them to such an extent that we sometimes forget that. These are also human beings with general human problems as well. And they can also have mental health issues. And especially at such an elite level when there's so much pressure on them, it's only going to increase. And then, but then we expect them to be superhumans. So when they come out and then talk about it, like it kind of makes it easy for us to have that conversation because now they are normalizing it instead of how before we used to celebrate them, you know, 
just brushing it off and then with the adrenaline rushing through. I think as well, it's actually quite a, almost like an inspirational thing as well. I think that the way that things are moving on, because in the past, if an athlete, say, who was being paid to be somewhere by a sponsor or by a team had had to pull out because of something like that, they would absolutely put it down to, oh, I've pulled a hamstring or I've done this or I've done that and not speak about it because having poor mental health probably wasn't a good enough reason for them not to do it. And in a sponsor's eyes or in a team's eyes, whereas now that's absolutely not the case. And I can't think of a single example of where it would be the case. Um, but pre- in previous you know, years gone by, you know, saying um, I'm just not in the frame of mind today would absolutely not be a good enough reason. And I think now it absolutely is. And it always kind of should have been. Mm. Yeah. Just just to Arif, uh, I was just, you know, you were saying, obviously, you've, you know, you've got experience of kind of living abroad and, and, and perhaps some sport abroad. How do you feel kind of team sports work in, in, say, countries like India? Is there a kind of lot of pressure to perform? Is there a lot of pressure, you know, to, to an extent that people can't express their mental well-being or, or poor mental health being, you know, um, adequately? I mean, Is it improving? So, uh, I... The thing with sports, especially like in general, is right. The people associate and then the love for sports is gets so much. The involvement gets so much. So there are examples where, especially let's say cricket in India, when the Indian cricketers do not perform, so they they are like the crowd goes to their places and then they pelt stones to their houses and then they have to face this trauma. Now they're like sitting in their house and then. Because they don't perform, right? So they don't have to face... It's like a pressure of one billion people. And it's not easy. And then, like, they cannot even speak about it. Because in India, I mean, it is improving. But then, absolutely, like, we're able to say that uh, I'm not having a bad day. Like, good day is a good enough reason for me to stay home. It is not in India. That's not how it works. You have to, like, say, get up, go to work, perform, even in sports. And then that if you're not performing even in your sport let's say you're going through a rough patch of form they will let you know and then the pressure only adds to it so the pressure is immense to be honest like on the elite sports at any level but then especially in India where the awareness is not that much I don't think any cricketer could come out and then easily speak that the about mental health because I don't know in, in a way for the average Indian crowd it's not that relatable they wouldn't know what it is. So, yeah, that way, it is very immense, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, going forward, actually, this leads on quite nicely that to, to what we're going to speak about next. So, the next thing we're going to speak about is our own experiences within sport. Um, but before we do that, I'm just going to quickly um, say, like just leading on from what you said, Arif, that from a very, very young age, is usually where you get what kind of person you're going to be. Um, So as in a sports context is what what I mean. So for instance, if you're in a a football team um, at, you know, six, seven years old and your coach is a bit of an elitist and everything's about winning and, you know, it's all pressure from a very, very young age, then that's what you're, you're kind of used to, if you know what I mean. Like you're used to having that pressure and that's what, is almost like, it, again, it used to be socially accepted that even at six, six, six years old, seven years old, you would get 
you know, your, your coach would be on your back all the time and it would just be about winning and things like that. And I think that that's changed massively as well recently. Um, a lot of youth sport is now, it, it's not so much youth sport. It's a, it is, I mean, it is youth sport, but it's seen more as like a, it's more hobbies and it's more something that you do for fun as opposed to, oh, you're going to go and do this and you're going to go and do that because you're going to go and get this. I mean, a lot, of, I mean, in my experience anyway, um, you know, when I, when I was younger, I know a lot of my friends went to football training and it was because they wanted to go here and they were going to do this, 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 this and this to get there. But it was more, you could almost hear it was their, their dads or their coaches talking. It wasn't like what a young person would think. Um, so I think that that's changed over the years and I think that must, I think that definitely helps young people actually enjoy sport for what sport's meant to be and not for any elitist reasons and it's the elitist reasons that mean that you get the pressure and it means that you end up with the anxiety or you know all these different bits and pieces so I think that now that that's changed that's really really good. Yeah I mean I can say that from, you know having been involved in sports development for the last sort of 10-11 years you know there's, there's been a lot more research put into it of why kids and why people in general take part in sport I mean all of us around the table, you know, if we've ever taken part in any sport, it's because we enjoy it. It's not because we want to win. Yes, you maybe do want to win. I mean, I yeah, I play rugby, so I don't I don't ride, but I go out on a Saturday and yeah, I want to win, but that's not the be all and end all. If I don't win the game, you know, it's it's not the end of the world. When I think before, you know, maybe five, ten years ago, even at the lower levels, you know, of age grade stuff, it was all about winning. But I think now coaches understand that it's it's fun. Kids are there because they want to have fun. They want to be running about with their mates. They want to be on bikes with their mates. Um, and for me, I think it's really important to continue that as well because I think even still to this day, you get to a certain level in sport and you're an adult and, and all of a sudden it's not supposed to be fun anymore. And now it's all about winning. It's all about developing as a player or a rider. So I think there has to be a bit of a, of a mix there. There has to be a bit of a balance. Um, and while I think there's probably we're on route to get there. I still think we're probably not where we need to be across the spectrum. There'll be certain sports that maybe are or certain coaches that maybe are. Um, but I think in general, I think we all need to sort of take a step back sometimes and go, firstly, why am I here? And why are the kids and why are the, the, the adults, the riders, the players, why are they here? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the inner sport, I mean, I, I'm sure that you've all, you'll all have heard the term a motocross dad is what it's kind of is what it's kind of focused towards. You've got the dad on the side of the on the side of the track shouting at the sun and threatening to put the bike in the back of the van if you don't pull your finger out, you know. That's 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 what our sport's kind of been like for the past wee while, and it's definitely moving away from that. And if there's one thing that I could say from 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 experience um, to any parents who are who are listening, um bike racing is fun it's a privilege to go bike racing because it's you know it's got its financial ties and things like that it's an absolute privilege so it's not something that should be taken lightly by children however it is just for fun it's not the be all and end all if they go out and they're you know half a second off their pb or if they're they finish third instead of instead of second or whatever it is if if your kid comes in and is you know happy got a smile on his face or whatever you've you've done your job and that's what you're there for yeah, what I always find is that, uh, you know, we're kind of getting off tangent a little bit here, but nobody nobody goes out and plans not to perform to their best. You know, nobody goes, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to finish second today. You know, <laughs> it doesn't happen. So for me, it's always really weird. Like, you know, and again, going back to my sport, is you're seeing 
families on the, the, the touchline on the sideline, you know, talking to the child, I didn't do this well, I didn't do that well. Uh, your, your head's just not in it. You're kind of like, of course it is. I'm, I'm here to enjoy myself. I'm here to play the sport. Why would my head not be in it? I just didn't win today, you know, or I didn't come first today or, or whatever. So, yeah, as I say, a bit of a tangent, but it's, it's just one of those things that you, you still see, you know, popping up from time to time. Uh, I mean, adding especially about the sport bit, right? Uh, like the lower levels is one thing, but but then uh, talking about the pressure at the elite level, I think it's uh, it also comes with uh, the attachment which fans do have. So, like the recent, I mean, if I could bring up a recent example in like football, just so Harry Maguire, like Manchester United player, got a red card, and then he was photographed, say, going out for his dad's birthday party the same night and then you could see online and even articles written about it that how could a player after securing getting a red card and then even like go out like say sun and telegraph coming out that this is shameful this is disgraceful so it's like now uh, where people like the problem there is like they, they get so involved in it that they tend to not separate that sport is also at the end of the day a job for him so when he comes out of the job, and he can he deserves to have a night like a chill night, but then like the pressure which is added only adds to like the point where say you're only mounting the pressure, and then that can affect the mental health, I suppose. So with that attachment, right, and I think that is like a fine line where you have to tread very slowly. There, uh, that is where again I think the problem is, and the problem still persists at elite level sports where people take it so passionately that they tend to forget it that it's at the job at the end of the day and post 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. when he's done playing, he's a normal human being who deserves to have his own happiness. So, yeah, I think that's where we should look at. It'd be really interesting, Callum, to hear your point of view, you know, because granted you're not a fully professional rider, you, you don't make a living out of it, but you are an elite rider in Scotland, you know, congratulations having just won your championship, you know, so it'd be really good to hear you know, is there is the pressures on you? You know, for example, do you do you ever think, oh, I need to win this race, otherwise I'm going to get dropped by my sponsor? For example, yeah. So I can actually speak about a good few things going through going through the years. I actually start off um, from when I was a little bit younger and kind of work my way up. When I was a little bit younger, um, you know, I was carrying a little bit of timber. Um, don't don't mind saying it. Um, I was a wee bit heavier than I should have been, um, and in order to try and fix that. I'm not going to say that I had an eating disorder, um, but I would actively set, um, you know, the, the pressure. I knew that that was the problem because that was what the family and the team spoke about. You know, you need to try and shift a little bit of weight. Um, but I kind of took that to heart. So I would, you know, I was 12 years old, 13 years old, and I was setting alarms on my phone for in the morning to remind me not to eat in the morning. Like I would say, do not eat. And then I would have another an alarm, you know, an hour later saying, do not eat, another alarm. And then you end up making yourself ill thinking you're doing the right thing when you're you're not. I mean, it's a massive a massive thing because it's all about education. I mean, you as a youngster, you don't really know much about nutrition and you don't, if your family don't take much of an interest in, in you know, knowing what's the best things to do and the best ways to go about things, I have no other reason than, than poor education on it as well. Um, then you've not really got somebody to teach you. So my, my fix for it and trying to lose weight was, just don't eat. If you just if you don't eat, then then you, you're surely going to lose weight. 
which is obviously the complete wrong thing to do. I mean, I ended up in in hospital um, when I was young because I was I wasn't suffering from mal malnutrition, but I wasn't I wasn't a million miles away from it. Um, and obviously now looking back, you're like, how how silly is that? Um, but at the time, that felt like the right thing to do. So, you know, that's one thing that that I, I kind of suffered from when I was a little bit younger. Um, going further further forward, I think every no no racer would tell the truth if they said they didn't get anxious. Um, you know, nerves, however they they show themselves within you. Um, whether you've got trait anxiety, which is you know you're anxious all the time, or like for myself, I've got a bit of state anxiety. So. Half an hour before a race starts, I've, you know, start to get a little bit shaky, start to feel a bit sick. Um, you know, couldn't tell you the amount of times you actually threw up before jumping on the bike. Um, you know, needing to pee all the time, things like that is all, all signs of having a bit of anxiety before going on going on the bike. And for some people, that's much worse than others. And I think that's one of the, the reasons that, that Fabio Quattararo last year, um, you know, fell off, um, fell off his bike and couldn't, pull up performance together was because he was so anxious about losing the championship lead and things like that. Um, and then the same, in 2019, I had a, a big crash. For the people watching on YouTube, this is the what's left of the crash. Um, and after that, it took me a long, long time to realise that what I was suffering from was a bit of, you know, a bit of a trauma disorder. Like I was proper... You know, I would wake up in the middle of the night, you know, jumping out of my skin because I think that I'm, you would go back to that moment where you crashed. You know, I was, um, it took me a good six months after the crash, if not a little bit longer, to actually be able to go for that gap again because, you know, you don't realise it until after the fact. But the reason you're not going for that gap is because you're kind of scared to crash again after experiencing what you already experienced. So it took me, like I say, best, probably the best part of a year, if I'm being honest to get back to, to where I needed to be. But at the time, it's just so frustrating because you don't realise that that's what's actually wrong with you until you get over it and look back. And the, the way you get over it is by analysing your performance and, you know, speaking to people about what, what you're feeling, why you're feeling it. And if you don't know, then it still helps to speak about it because it still kind of maybe, if you don't say something out loud, it maybe triggers something in your own head. And that's one thing that you need to, that I would say from from my point of view is that my my team, my family, friends, everybody just listened to my my woes, if you like, at the time. I was just so fed up. And if I'm being honest, we, we nearly quit racing at the end of 2019 because I was just hating it. I just couldn't couldn't get on with it at all. Um so have you found you've got better at it? Have you developed coping mechanisms that help your anxiety, Callum? Yeah, so um luckily for me, I'm studying sports coaching at um, at uni, I'm in my final year of sports coaching at uni, so a lot of our classes and stuff have been on coach development to help athletes deal with things, which has obviously been good because you can I can coach yourself to to do those things, um, and then obviously studying psychology um, has helped me massively to to work out what to do. Um, my biggest thing is my little pre-performance routine that I do, um, you know, the deep breathing exercises. Uh, positive self-talk, things like that. All these things really, really help me. Um, and it's such simple things that take very little time to do that help so much. Um, and I can probably say that that's not just from a sporting point of view, but from everything. You know, if you're a little bit nervous for a job interview and you have a bit of deep breathing and, you know, a bit of positive self-talk and remind yourself why you're there type thing, then it's it always helps. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I, I, I've always kind of suffered from some form of anxiety. Anybody listens to me talk would not believe that for a minute. However, that it's a coping mechanism in, in itself. I, I used to, um, I, I, I couldn't perform in exams at school. Um, I, I mean, I, I kind of did what I needed to do and I, I got what I needed to go, but it was never quite where it should have been. And um, I used to just get so anxious at exams that it, it made me ill. Um, but, um, you know, I kind of, and I didn't really recognise that until I, until I was a good bit older, but maybe probably about kind of 20 years ago, somebody kind of, and, and again, this is kind of really before mental health had kind of kicked to where it is now. But, you know, somebody kind of sat me down and said, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be heard about the, the hemigdala, which is part of your brain. Um, and um, again, can we be just going into the kind of um, theoretical part of the, the anatomical part of anxiety? But, you know, there's a bit of your brain called the amygdala. And what it does is it's the bit that produces um, adrenaline or um, ephedrine or, 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 or um, uh, cortisol. You know, there's various kind of things. But if you just, let's just call it all adrenaline for a minute there. Um, adrenaline is created. Your brain cannot determine the difference between fear and excitement. It's the same emotion, right? So the, the, the amygdala part of it, your brain um, tries to make sense of emotions. You know? Excitement and fear are the same thing. So if you've got a kind of fear for something, so whether it's, getting on a motorbike and, and um, having a race or, or uh, speaking in front of people or really anything that, that, that causes anxiety for you. You know, um, one, of the, one of the tricks I was told is fuel your brain. So what you do is you, rather, than you, rather than tell yourself you're afraid of whatever it is, you say in a loud voice, you say, I am excited I am excited to do this. I am excited to do this. Say it three times and, 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 and out loud and just get louder, that wee bit louder every time. And then take a deep breath. And actually what you'll find is you've tricked your brain. I, 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 I defy anybody to try and say it doesn't work, right? But it, it will actually put a smile on your face. And whatever you're facing, you will go ahead and do it. And it's, and it's a trick that I've had for 20, 25 years, and it's it's just so true. You know, I, I still get anxiety, anxiety trying to speak to people in, in meetings. And it's like, I, you know, I'm excited by this. I'm excited by this. I'm excited by this. Mm-hmm. And actually, yes, you are. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's strange. I've got no, you know, it's, it's just your brain being fooled. It's, it's something it's that a good I've tried. Trick. I've tried it before, Gary, and, and slightly different in the sense of, like, for example, you know, I go... I need to go to the gym today. But instead of going, I need to go to the gym to get today, I think, you know, I can. I've got the opportunity to go to the gym today. And it's just that change in mindset. Because I think perspective and mindset is massive, you know. Because mm. I am, I'm, you know, again, just like everybody else around this table, suffered with my own, you know, cases of anxiety as well. And again, being a sportsman, there is a lot of pressure to, to perform, you know. And um, I mean, I'm not an elite sportsman but I play at a decent level, um, you know, so there is always that kind of, you know, I don't want to let my, my teammates down or oh, what if I don't perform today and I get dropped from the team and I'm not in the team next week. So there is always that kind of that bit of anxiety. But I think I've found myself sometimes, even on the pitch, just taking a little bit of a step back and just going, enjoy the experience, you know, mm-hmm. because I know I'm not going to be able to play forever. So while I can, again, I get the opportunity to play, go out and just have fun. And I definitely know that I play 
for me, I play my best rugby when I'm having fun. Um, and as you say, you know, if you just change that from really scared in this situation to I'm really excited about the situation, it makes a massive difference. I mean, the, yeah. the vast, vast majority of people have some level of anxiety. What, you know, whether depend, you know, whether it's minor or or major, it makes no odds. Uh, and it's it, it's it's just such an easy trick to have in your have, have in your your mind that you can do. And yeah, genuinely, it's it's just it, it's one of the most brilliant pieces of advice I've ever had professionally or personally to do because uh, it's just helped me in so many situations. Um, you know, the kind of and the other thing to remember is anxiety is you know ninety five percent of it is based on something that will never happen to you. You've got a fear of something that will not happen. It's funny, you know, that's that's another thing, Gary, that, and it was only recently, I think it was, it was either in a book I read or a podcast or something, and it was, I think it was something like, um, anticipation is always worse than participation. So you always think it's going to be worse than it is. You know, and I've actually shared that that technique and that little saying with my, uh, my fiancé, and that seems to help her as well is that because she can sometimes overthink things a little bit and just that little, you know, anticipation uh, is always worse than participation. Just remind yourself that and it doesn't change your perspective mm. on things. Yeah, anybody who overthinks uh, gets really anxious. As I say, you know, it's back to what's making you anxious, right? Is that, re- and then just take a step back and go, is that genuinely going to happen? I've, you know, I've got a fear that somebody will not like me or somebody will not like my hairdo or my clothes or, or my performance or, you know, whatever it is, it can be something really minor, but it builds up. And it, uh, yeah, 95% of stuff is probably not going to happen to you. Back to Callum's point about looking for the space. Yeah, it's, the space is probably there most of the time. It's just that you don't, you, your fear of not seeing it is, 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 is making you not want to do it. Yeah, like from for myself, it was the more the the fear of of crashing again. You know that I could absolutely see the gap was there, but it was the you know if I had to go for that gap, then I might crash or I might you know I mean something might happen. But um, it's really really interesting you saying about the the you know pleasant excitement or unpleasant anxiety because as I say, studying this at university, we had an exam, and if anybody wants to go and read up on it, it's called reversal theory. That's the that's the theory behind it. It's an yeah. academic theory that's absolutely kind of proven. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's something that people should really look into because it's a really, really cool idea. It's why people like roller coasters. That, yeah. It's fundamentally, that's why people like roller coasters. It, you know, if, if you're on a roller coaster, you, you know, you go from being screaming your head off to, whoa, I... It's because your brain's completely confused. It doesn't know if it should be afraid, uh, petrified at your wits, or if you're to be, you know, um, really high up and in a kind of excitement level. Uh, that that's you know that's it in a very 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 simple context. That's why people like roller coasters. Remember yourself. That's where you need to be. Well, see, just before we, before we go on as well, I think it's probably important that we speak about you know we're speaking about how anxiety is a bad thing in sport. Arguably. You know, for me, I would say you need to have a level of anxiety, especially in our sport. Um, you know, if if someone, like I said to you before, if someone had to say, oh, don't get don't get nervous at all, I would almost see that as a bit of a bad thing, especially in our sport where it comes with such such dangers. Um, you know, the, the dangerous aspect of our sport is maybe what makes it exciting. But as a rider, 
if you don't have that anxiety of the things that could go wrong and you don't consider things, then it would actually have an adverse effect on your performance as well. And I think, again, that transfers over to most aspects in life. If, you've not, if you don't consider things, I think the anxiety definitely puts things into consideration for you. Um, and as a racer, I would absolutely, absolutely say that you need to have some sort of level of anxiety, but it just needs to be the right level for you. Everybody's correct level of anxiety is completely different. Um, so there could be 30 riders on the grid. One guy could be really chilled out, but that's his, his level of anxiety is just where it needs to be. So other people will be sitting on the grid and they'll be, you know, twitching around and fixing everything. And that's where they need to be. It's all, it's all completely, completely different. So if you think, oh, my little ways, maybe not the same as his, so it's not right. That's absolutely not true. Everybody's different. Yeah, everybody's um, got different coping mechanisms. I mean, if you look at, I mean, I'll, I always used to, love watching um what's his name Usain Bolt not not for the fact that he was able to do 100 meters in 9.4 seconds but you watched his behavior before races and he, he come across as the most chilled out guy in the planet you know I, I can remember him um he was going up for starting blocks and and there was like you know maybe a girl who kind of take his tracksuit off him and that sort of stuff standing by and he was I think he got her to like have a go in the starting blocks for him, you know. Yeah, just I think to, he like fist bumped her and stuff, and he was just yeah, kind of yeah. Chilled and out. you think, and everybody else is kind of you can almost like feel the tension, and and it, you know, but but behind that, you know, the, the, you know, you kind of thought, oh, he's a joking guy and all that sort of stuff. But he's obviously attuned his brain that that's his way of of dealing with stress. Is is it's not going to bother me? I'm just going to have a laugh with the, the girl I'm, but I'm still mentally tuned into what I'm going to do but I can just basically get on the blocks after that he's he's not panicking he's not getting all, all too excited about it uh, that's just his way he's dealing with it but you can bet your bottom dollar it's it's well rehearsed it's not as slapstick as you kind of think it is he's, he's, he's went out with, probably with that intention uh, or doing something similar because he, he did it quite regularly yeah. I think adding to Callum's point, right, about the whole anxious and being anxious and how, like, a little bit of anxiety is important. I'd say, I mean, the, the proper term or to call that is being mindful in that moment. So, be, like, especially at least with me, I've had this problem where uh, the problem is not the anxiety, it's the level of anxiety you face. So, and then you start getting into the loop of it. And... Uh, it's like the infinite loop where you start thinking about the situations which are going to happen and then you literally predict the outcome in your own head and you predict the worst outcome and then you spiral and then you keep spiraling and that gets you anxious. What helps at least in uh, me in those moments or in general is being mindful or just watching your surroundings. So even with like Usain Bolt or I mean, that's like the elite level, but then in general, even at like the minute levels, just focusing in that moment and then looking at your surroundings, what is happening, what is happening with you and what you are doing in that moment and just being mindful of what you are doing. So I think that is what helps a person get out of that loop or at least that's what has helped me. And I think training yourself to do that and then regularly doing that, you get to the level of what Usain Bolt did get to at the end. Yeah, it's a level, it's a, it's a type of mindfulness, you're absolutely right, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, 
we'll, we'll, we'll move on a wee bit to you know the, the effect that motorcycle sport have, perhaps has on your mental health and then we've kind of spoke about some strategies and stuff like that that we've implemented but um you know I'll, I'll kick us off by saying that I, for, for me motorsports had both ends of the spectrum um as an effect of my mental health so one you know one end it's made me really really stressed and you know the the how you perceive it like we were just talking about you know how how you're looking at your reason whether you're looking at so say you go out and you finish second you do a pb but you've you finished second, so that's not quite good enough and you're not happy whereas you know this year um my kind of mental outlook on racing has changed massively since my crash in 2019 we after that i was like oh you know i really don't want to do this and if i you know i've got wasn't performing at the level that I should have been, you know, what I should have been, if you want to call it that. Um, and that really, really got me down. Whereas this year, if I've went out and finished second, I know that I've given everything to get to that second place. And if I've given everything, what else could I have done? And that's something that, you know, your results only, your results say what your results were, but that doesn't have a real show of what your performance was. Um, and I think that that's a really important thing for, for young people to, to look at. If you go out and you've not, you know, you've not quite done your personal best lap time or you've finished second instead of first, you know, the track might not have been in the best condition or whatever. If you go out and you try as hard as you possibly can try, that's that's good enough um, for for everybody. I think as nobody else can ask any more of you than that. And, um, you know, like on the opposite side, racing bikes, even if you do finish second and you're like, ah, oh, finish second. If once you've kind of stopped thinking about the fact that you finished second, racing bikes and being on bikes in general is just it releases so many endorphins in your system and you just it makes you so happy because it's it's kind of well, I'm saying it's what you do. That's it's what I do to to go and have fun. I mean, I go go on my bike to have have fun, have a laugh, be with the family. And if you you know come home at the end of the weekend with a broken bike or whatever, then you've still had fun doing it. I think, yeah, I mean Calm, like you say, it's I think that's the case for any sport, any physical activity. It's you do it because you enjoy it. You do it because, you know, it must bring you some form of enjoyment. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. You know, but I even take, like, the example for today. Arif and I were at a three-and-a-half-hour meeting down in the Fries. You know, that's an hour-and-a-half drive, three-and-a-half-hour meeting, hour-and-a-half hour drive back up. But before I got home, I just stopped in at the gym. I did a quick half an hour. You know, it was nothing crazy. There was a few push exercises. And even just from that to then sit back in the car like my mental state was just completely different because if I've had I just came straight home you know and made my dinner or whatever and then I would just sit in front of the tv again then I don't think one I definitely know that I don't sleep as well if I don't do any physical activity that day so first off not going to sleep very good which means probably tomorrow probably not going to be in the best of moods it's probably going to have a knock-on effect on my performance whether it be at work or at training or at rugby or whatever which is then probably going to have a knock-off effect on my mental health. So that one little half an hour that I've taken out of my day to go to the gym, I know will have a massive effect on not only tonight, but also tomorrow. Yeah, I, I, can, I can completely back that up. Um, you know, like during the, the winter time, as a bike racer, um, you know, a road racer, our season stops in October time and then doesn't start again until March, April time. So you've got that whole six months where you're trying to fill that little adrenaline rush and, you know, keep those endorphins in your system because that's what we do to make ourselves happy. Obviously, we've got other hobbies and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I can absolutely say that nothing nothing hits it just like riding a bike does. So 
Um, you know, being in the, like you say, even things like being in the gym, for mental health, being in the gym is just such a massive thing, um, you know, for anybody. You know, being in the gym, it releases endorphins as well for the exact same the exact same thing is that it feels good. I mean, it, sometimes it feels bad if you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, you know, I'm a bit sore. But actually, I don't know anybody. I, I've, I've never met anybody who doesn't like that feeling because it makes you feel like you've done something. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've had training sessions that I've hated it. Hated absolutely every single second that I've been doing it. But once you come off, you have a shower, you chill out, you're like, you know, I feel great. I feel great for having done it. Um, but yeah, exactly. It's just... For me, it's any any physical activity, any sort of sport. I mean, I'll try any sport to be honest with you. I it definitely has a massive effect on my on my mental health, both positively and negatively. I mean, I don't know how you guys coped during COVID, but I know you know having my sport taken away from me was was massive. You know, granted there was other aspects, you know, being in the house all day or whatever, but not being able to play for a year and a half, almost two years, had a massive effect on me. Yeah, I can absolutely, I can absolutely say that as well. And you know, our, our seasons didn't, you know, football started, rugby started, a lot of things started before bike racing started again. Um, and it was absolutely, you know, it was I was for tearing my hair out um, by the the time that everybody was getting back to things, and we still weren't. Um, and you know, when I, got, I actually got back, it obviously made me such, it made me so much happier. Um, but like you say, I mean, the, the being stuck in COVID, I mean, I'm actually in isolation just now because managed to catch COVID. Um, so, you know, even just that, even just, you know, doing this call tonight, speaking about bikes is actually making me quite happy compared to what I've been like all week when I've been, you know, sitting doing uni work and looking at theories about psychology like we've just been talking about. It's, um, you know, sitting speaking about bikes tonight has put a smile on my face. And I think that's the, you know, even that's the effect that even speaking has on things. You know, speaking yeah. about things is just so good. And I think that comes back to this overarching thing that we're talking about tonight, which is just about feeling comfortable enough to have a conversation, whether it be about, you know, whether it formally be about mental health and go, you know, I'm really struggling today and this is what I'm maybe to do, or genuinely just having a conversation about your day. You know, before we went, before we started recording this, you know, we were just chatting about what we're doing today. You know, that in itself is a is a coping technique. Um, you know, and it, again, it comes back to the importance of firstly being being able to feel confident enough that you can talk, but also the other side of that and being someone who you know that your friends can rely on to come and speak to. You know, because I think a lot of the time we do always say that it's really really good to talk about things. But I think also you've got a responsibility to the people in your life to be that support sometimes as well. I mean, I mean as I said, I've kind of got a training in it to an extent. I'm not a, not a specialist by any means, but you know, I'm interested in the kind of um, the, the sort of theoretical into practical side of things. Um, I think it's it's always good to talk. You you don't have to kind of fear that. You know, I think it's it's one of these things that. You know, again, a bit like physical first aid. You wouldn't walk past somebody in the street who'd kind of fallen. You, you wouldn't get, in, you wouldn't walk past them simply because you, you didn't know how to do a certain thing, right? You would, you know, the, the basis of first aid is making somebody comfortable, you know, uh, helping and 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 just that wee bit until some somebody else who's better than you or more more knowledgeable than you can come along and deal with the situation. And it's the same with with, with mental uh, mental health. Uh, first aid as well the idea is that you are not in the same way as you're not a, somebody who can mix fix a broken leg 
you are also somebody who cannot fix somebody's um, mental challenges necessarily. But if you can actually speak to them and just, to, you know, to Callum's point, you know, he, he's kind of felt a bit invigorated by the fact he's come and spoken to a few people that he's maybe never met before and about bikes because it, it distracts them from what else is going on in his life. That's, that's phenomenally important. Uh, you know, you should never kind of walk past the opportunity to kind of listen to somebody speak about their challenges because it, it'll probably make them feel, you know, you can't underestimate probably how much better that you make them feel as a consequence of uh, having spoken to them rather than walking past them. Uh, it's just big, really big. I think there's probably an unintended consequence in that as well, Gary, that, you know, you go, well, I've dealt with that problem as well, or I'm going through that as well, you know, so if you, if you maybe don't feel comfortable enough to speak about things, but you're comfortable enough to listen to people, mm-hmm. again, it almost gives you that reassurance of going, Do you know what, it's not only me, I'm not the only one struggling, or with that certain aspect of my life, or however the world is at the moment. Um, so yeah, really, really important thing to consider as well. Obviously, Gary, in your in your role, um, you've like you say, you look at the the theory, and you've you've helped people along the way, um, you know, even in your role at, at the speedway. So, what what would you say? As you know, we've spoke about our ways of dealing with it. What what have you? How have you helped people in the past who you've um, you know helped along the way? First of all, I can help myself. <laughs> so I'm I'm completely different. So bike racing for me, you know, I I've kind of barely. Oh, I was on a bike probably a good bit younger than you probably. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've not been on since. And uh, I've got no real interest. In, I've got to an age where I've got no interest in being on a bike. But what, ex- what interests me is, um, uh, obviously, I've been a Speedway fan for 40-odd years. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's just brilliant. Um, and my, my, my job's quite stressful. You know, I manage projects with eight you know, an eight-figure portfolio, and I don't mean the decimal point and the pennies after it. So um, I I use Speedway on a, on a Friday night or whenever it is as a complete switch off. Um, my brain works in a... I, I kind of train my brain to work in a completely different way to kind of, you know, have a good cut between what my professional life does and the stresses of that to get a speedway and, and I, I just get so involved in the speedway and now obviously taking on you know getting the getting the sheer uh having the enthusiasm up and the, the delight of watching young kids actually take up the sport and go from a situation where they kind of struggle to balance you know a small motorbike to the point and Shabazz sort of saw this uh, about a month ago you know, within a matter of weeks, we've got eight-year-olds sliding 150cc motorbikes. It, it, it's just immense. It's, you know, it's just it's just great. So I kind of use it as escapism. And then, and then when I leave the stadium, I go, oh, I've spent four hours there. And uh, it's, 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 it's great. You know, and then I can kind of go back to my job, having used a different part of my brain. And, um, you know, I can go back to it. Otherwise... If I didn't have that, it's all about distractions for me and, and for anybody as well. It's important that you have distractions. It's, you know, okay, f- physical's great. I walk my dog and all that sort of stuff. I'm a bit old for, you know, playing tennis or or, or whatever. I, I kind of get that now. But I think also more quite importantly as well as when you're speaking to people is understand that, that you know, there, there's actually things to be done with your brain as well. It's because this is kind of all, you know, 
back to Ari's point about overthinking, you know, if, if you can get a, a coping mechanism, a distraction that takes you away from what it is that you are overthinking about, you know, whether it's playing a guitar or 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 watching watching a football game or, or doing something, that's so important. And if you encourage people to kind of do that, you know, to do a jigsaw, whatever it is, it doesn't even have to be very physical. But the important thing is that they can actually take themselves away from what where the fear is, if you like, where, where their stress is. It's so important. But yeah, that, that that's for me. Um, as I say, it's completely the opposite for you, Callum. You know, I, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll happily let you have a shot at the bike. Um, it's, it's, it's all good stuff. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all about distractions for me. Yeah. I think that, you know, like that's actually something that, you know, not, not to use it as a plug or anything like that, but I mean, the SECU, in general, for across all the clubs and across all the different sports that are affiliated with the SACU, they're always looking for volunteers. And I know fine well that a lot of the volunteers who, you know, people who marshal or people who um, go as, a, you know, officials at the events or whatever, you know, things like that, they go there for the exact same reason as I go there. They go for a bit of a release. They go to have fun. It's the exact same thing in a completely different role. And it's exactly what you just explained, Gary. You know, like, mm. we go, both go... To, to events for bike racing, to have a bit of a release, have a bit of fun, and, you know, to, to get away from the other things that are going on in our life. And I think that, yeah. you know, everybody should everybody should experience it. This, you know, like I say, not to be a plug, but all the clubs are always looking for volunteers and stuff like that. Um, and if, you've, if you are considering going to do that as a bit of a release, then I would absolutely recommend it to anybody. Absolutely. You know, whether, whether it's first aid or as I say marshalling or, or helping help help helping people get on with what it is that they, they want to do um where you can feel that you can add a bit of value yeah get yourself out there it's good for your it's good for your well-being so the last thing that we that we kind of were going, going to speak about was you know who who would you speak to about your mental health so you know for for me I'm Luckily, lucky enough to have, you know, a, a really supportive family round about and a really, you know, healthy band of friends and things like that to speak about that I'm comfortable speaking about things with. Um, but I know fine well that not everybody will have that. And not only, uh, even people might have that, but they might not be comfortable speaking to their friends and family about it. So, you know, the first, I would always say the first protocol is definitely friends and family. And then other than that, you know, people like your, your, your GP. I mean, your GP's trained in, all these different things and can refer you to loads of different people to help you with all your all your mental health needs so i would definitely you know call your gp and um, there's the scottish association for mental health sam h um breathing space samaritans um you know people like that who all have helplines that run most of them are 24 7 um, and you can anonymously speak to people and just get things off your chest if you're not wanting to speak to anybody else about it and you can do it anonymously to a stranger and even things like that will make you feel better just by saying things out loud it might help you deal with it uh, just just, you, uh, sorry Ali yeah, carry on yeah no. so just adding to say Karen's point right like I suffer from like my own mental issues and before or at, until recently uh, I shouldn't be saying this but then I was ashamed of talking about it because um, I felt or I had the stigma in my own head that I don't know it's something bad or it's uh, 
not something that's uh, to be spoken about. And I think uh, even uh, when I interned with, like when I started interning with uh, SACU, initially I was uh, enthusiastic. I was doing the work, but then that got derailed. And then uh, for like a long moment, I didn't speak. I couldn't speak to Shabazz or I couldn't tell him what the problem was. And uh, I think uh, here with this place, right? I have been seeking uh, professional help where I go to a therapist and people discard it. And then some like, like you have things like where really you call it them as shrinks and stuff. But then I think uh, professional help really does help because uh, what uh, problem with like, say when you suffer from like a proper mental health problem is that when you suffer like a uh, spiral with your own problems, you think of the worst. But then when you go and speak out to a professional and then when they actually tell you that it, this is not that bad and then you have ways to cope with it and then they help you understand what the problem is and it's like any other disease. Like, I mean, if you have cold, you would obviously have a runny nose and then you cannot really help. So it's not you that's the problem. It's a disease, which is a problem. So even the same with mental health, sometimes you blame yourself. You're like, why am I not doing well? Why am I feeling that bad? So it's not me who's like having the trouble. It is say the disease. So I think the perspective and uh, like in general, the help, which uh, especially with it. So like you were talking about, so I mean, uh, at least me, I haven't seen uh, taken much help in this country, but then I speak to my therapist back from India. And then I have like constant, at least say once a month I go and then I seek therapy. And then that's personally helped me with it. Uh, so and that's also helped me open up and then also helped me let's say come about uh, even to this podcast I don't think I could have done it like a year or two ago where I could have even said uh, on an open platform that I have this problem so I think uh, professional help does help you a lot in that way yeah I think I think one of the things about mental health first aid is and I touched on it earlier is um, in the same way as while I do physical first aid and uh, I see somebody with a broken leg, I can't fix a broken leg, but I can get them, I can help them get to someone who can. Um, same with uh, mental health first aid. You, you, um, it's signposting. You know, you, you, you're kind of listening to somebody, understanding what the challenge is and what their issue is. And, and if you can give some kind of words of comfort, then that's, that's great. You make them feel a wee bit better. But there is a recognition that obviously, um, there might be something beyond that that you kind of need to, to help, you know, all the way up to kind of worst case scenario around about suicide as an example or suicidal thoughts. But it, it is, um, you know, there are, there are there is plenty of help out there that, you know, uh, bodies, GPs, um, you know, uh, even, even, even if, if, if uh, self-help is your thing, Okay, you know, there, there's lots of, um, you know, uh, for instance, I mean, I mentioned distractions earlier on, but there's also things like mental health apps out there. You know, so if you if you don't feel that you want to go and speak to someone because you feel you're burdening them, although you shouldn't feel that way, um, you know, something like Headspace, Headspace.com is is um, sort of fairly, you know, that's not a plug. Uh, I use kind of Headspace. I get Headspace for free, so it, it's great. Um, I'm quite happy to <laughs> to promote them. Um, but the you know there's other ones as well. But they, they've got lots of tools and techniques and and um, you know help that you can kind of just access on your phone. You know there's there's meditation. There's well-being. Sorry, mindfulness. 
there's there's lots of different stuff because it's not a one size fits all solution as well is in the same way as you know if you're learning something some people learn by having somebody tell them it some people read some people listen you know you know to this you know an audio tape or, or you know whatever it may be uh, we all learn in different ways we also will res- take different ways of kind of dealing with you know what, what's troubling us um and as i say it has to be recognized there's, there's no one way it's, it's kind of trying things and you might have to take a few things before you actually get to you know seeing something and or experiencing dealing with something that you yeah feel that works for you i think that's the important thing is you know don't you know uh, you know if, i always you know my daughter's always one of these people who kind of says oh you know gets a bit anxious and you say you know have you, have you tried doing whatever no i've tried that well try something else or try it again and try it in a different way um because th- there will be something out there that'll help you there's no there's no doubt about it so lots of different ways that you can help yourself and uh, but as i say there's no for me there is no uh, being a social animal there is no um substitute for for talking to people and if you've got the ability to 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 listen you know just shut up and listen um it's amazing what you can pull out of somebody uh, adding to sorry yeah go on I know, so all I was going to say there was that, um, you know, the the thing with everything at the moment is that well, I, I'm trying to say something that I don't know what to say. So if you had, if you had say, a, a broken injury, a broken arm and, you know, the, your doctor had healed your broken arm and then your muscles weren't quite right round about it and you weren't as strong as you once were, so you would go and see a physio. It, it's now a massive thing in sport, especially. I mean, if you're listening to this to try and get some to get some, um, you know, tips about sport and, um, you know, about how your mental health can affect your sporting career. You know, I don't, I can't think of a single elite athlete now who hasn't got a sports psychologist. It's the exact same thing. You know, if you had a broken arm, you would go to your doctor. If you'd pulled a muscle, you would go to your physio. If you're suffering from mental health, there's sports psychologists out there now as well, as well as clinical psychologists for people who are struggling with everyday life. There's sports psychologists too, and they are becoming equally as important as a personal trainer and a, a physiotherapist now in, in sport. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's be, became such a more normal thing to, to do. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's all I was going to say there. What were you going to say, Arif? No, no, I mean, I was just reiterating the same point that, that you know, uh, well, uh, the problem in general, right, uh, when, like, the, the way Gary was speaking, that the main problem, especially when you have mental health issues, you think that you're becoming a burden and even like say sharing your problems uh, to others, you feel that you're just burdening them. But then I'd say like start with your own family, see like who you're closest to. It could be your partner. It could be your girl, let's say your girlfriend, your mother, your father, but then start off there and then always try seeking professional help because it genuinely helps. Like I'm speaking about with my personal experience, until I uh, seek personal help, I did not know what I was suffering from. I knew there was something wrong with me. And there was like, I had like some issues, like I had suicidal issues and I have, I was going through a lot, but then I did not know what it was. And until you can name it, there is like, say, once the, your professional therapist can name it, then it is, it becomes easier for you because when you can see the symptoms and you know the disease, then it is easier to find the cure for it as well. So it is a process as well. So absolutely, like start off with speaking to your family and then how you're talking about, uh, say, 
people we go to like a physician or like a normal doctor when we have any physical disease you have sports psychologists and then you have clinical psychologists as well so it is i mean they would know and then you should absolutely go to them and speak to them even if you're not feeling it right it all starts with i'm not feeling it today and then it just spirals into it so when that happens you should be able to i mean if you are not able to let's say speak to someone you could you could directly go to like a doctor or a gp you could like uh, go to a gp speak about it and then they'll refer you to a clinical psychologist and then just talking about it really helps because if you just put it in it will only pile on and if you don't really share with it like with everyone you would think you are sinking in this world but then nothing is going to happen no one else will know unless you actually speak like to people about it so yeah you should take professional help that's my two cents and it's okay to be okay it's okay to be not okay sorry yeah. um just to your point arif you know you you know some days uh, you will feel better than others exactly. you know mental mental health is variable you have good, everybody has it but everybody is good or bad and and um you know as i say it is it is variable and it's a journey you know even if you have bad mental health consistently um and your kind of root out is you know it's not like taking a you know necessarily taking all the antibiotics for two weeks and yeah. then you kind of feel a bit better after that and you're okay um you know quite often it's a it's a long journey but you kind of have to realize it is a journey but you you will be you will have good days and you you will have not so good days but it, it's the coping with the it's a recognition that yeah, it is okay, you know, or 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 I I can kind of try and deal with it using my my my, my coping techniques, um, you know, whether it's speaking to people, doing something yourself, or whatever. I think one of the other things, just just very very quickly, is is it's probably just an understanding. Is a lot of people when they kind of get challenged to sort of say, what do you do after a stressful day? Um, you know, try if you sell list five things you would do after a stressful day. I bet you they're all solo activities. You know, whether so whether it's going to the gym, or walking your dog, or 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 or, or cycling, or you know whatever it is, uh, one of the things to watch is that if you kind of do something consistently that's on your own, where you don't talk to anybody, you just get on and you do it, and you you know whether you're punching a punch bag or you know hitting the weights or you know you're going like mad on a rowing machine or you know whatever it is, um, just always just keep in the back of your head it's good to talk. And it's good to speak to someone, you know, because um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a different it's a different experience, I think, you know. So uh, that, again, that's another tip for me is you know don't go down the line of just you know keeping it all to yourself because ultimately it, it will probably come back at you after you know it's a wee bit like you know having a drink and it sort of for those of us that have a drink now and again, you know, you'll, you'll feel a bit happier. But after that, you kind of come back to, to where you were because at the end of the day, it's a drug that's releasing something in your body. Um, but yeah, um, it's it's always better to talk. Um, so get yourself into a situation where it's, you know, with someone or a group of people that you can kind of sort of get out and, and do something with as a group. It's always helpful. Is there anything else that MD wants to add to, to the people who are listening? I think we've actually covered quite a lot tonight. It's been pretty pretty good. Um, I think we'll definitely have helped a few people. And like even even just listening to us talking about our problems, like you say, might you know show people that 
you know, that's that's what they're feeling. So no, I think we've I think not to pat our own back or anything, but I think we've done a pretty good job tonight. So thank you to to the, the three guests here who have obviously shared all their stories and um, their experiences within sport and within within normal life. Um, and um, yeah, it's been a really really good podcast. And thank you very much for everybody for listening. Well done, Callum. Thank you. Perfect. Cheers, Callum. Bye, everybody. Yeah.